Hello and welcome to part two of the Slumgullion's 100th episode extravaganza. Reporting from the Pacific Time Zone, I'm half your host, Scott. The other half of your host, Jeff, is calling in from the Eastern Time Zone, and today we're joined by one of our favorite guests, writer, director, actor, and illustrator Larry Blamire, who's calling in from an even more exotic locale. Uh, can't read my notes. Uh, the negative zone? No. The phantom zone. Oh, out of zone. Slum, 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 gullion. Slum, gullion. We've got season two of the slum, gullion. Jeff and Scott's girl host of slum, gullion. I still don't know what that word means. Do, 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 do. Slum, gullion. We still got some guests on the slum, gullion. We're not showing breasts on the slum, gullion. Should probably fade on the slum gullion. Welcome to the slum gullion, America's only podcast. Hello, Larry. Thank you so much for being a part, a major part, if not the heart, of our 100th episode extravaganza. I can't believe we got this far. Well, thank you. I, I feel honored to be uh, on this special show. Uh, commemorating, uh, hard to believe, 100 years of slum gullion. Uh, <laughs> seems like it sure doesn't, uh, it sure flew, didn't it? <laughs> I remember in 1822 when we started this, I Scott mean, my, didn't my, think it was going to last. I, I didn't. I, I thought, oh, podcast, it's a flash of the pad. But you know what? When we started, I was in... Uh, short pants and uh i have since graduated to men's uh hosiery garters you were in long pants weren't you in knickers i was i was uh i was one of the knickers yes but then i learned how to shave and everything's fine now i you know i can't believe you you uh remember 1822 jeff i can barely remember that donut i found on the ground last week How often do you find donuts on the ground, Larry? More than you'd think. I mean, you know what it is? No no one looks. Ah. Because when you walk by, you know, and you, we just walk and we go, we're, we're so caught up in our in our devices that we ignore the, the beauty of the sky and, the, and nature and the trees and the grass and the donut. <laughs> it's true. When you, when you hear all those pop songs about people walking along, you know, they're walking along a lonely street of dreams or... They're just, they're thinking about love. They're thinking about loss. They're thinking about tomorrow. They're never thinking about the donuts. They just step on them. Yeah. Yeah. I think if more people were aware of it, they'd find, you know, more donuts would be found. I think so too. We're dangerously close to this whole episode becoming free to be you and me. So before we get too <laughs> life positive and hippie life. I, I was going to say, I, I think, I think we have the, the, the opening chapter of a new Doc, Doc Armstrong book here. <laughs> You know, you, 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 well, that's possible, but let, there's nothing free to be you and me about finding a donut on the ground. I think it's it's actually more, it's a little uncannily disturbing to be uh, free to be you and me. It's, well, okay, sure. I just think, you know, if you open up your senses and uh, to the possibilities of the world, including the sidewalk donuts, you're living more in the now. That's just my feeling, but I understand what you're saying. I, I personally don't find the, the sidewalk donuts disturbing unless the person who finds it eats it while I'm watching. Wait, why wouldn't you? Oh, you wouldn't eat it. Oh, okay. I would, no, I, she was. Because I was raised middle class and suburban. 
We didn't do that. It's a donut, Scott. It's a donut. How can you turn down a donut, even if it is street-based? I guess it depends on what kind of shoes I'm wearing. <laughs> some of it, I have some, no some idea of what that means, and I love it. <laughs> I'm glad I could steer us in the right direction uh, on this show. Oh, yeah. No, I feel like we're really zeroing in on the point. Yeah. <laughs> we can forget about the donut now. <laughs> but but I, I still have my spoon, so it's okay. No, good, because you never know where there's going to be soup. I don't know why, Larry, but that is one of my favorite lines you've ever written. I don't know why, but I can. I have What's watched that video, and it still makes me giggle. What is it in? The spoon? What is it in? It right. was in one of your uh, Larry Blymeyer things. T was it Tales from the Pub? Oh, no, no, it was just it was just a thing. It was oh, just right. a 45 minute. I always carry around a spoon because you never know when there might be soup. Yeah, okay. And that's all it was, and it made me very happy. <laughs> Those feel distant now. God, they, what, they're like 10 years ago, I think. Oh, was it oh, really? Yeah. Wow. I think so, yeah, yeah. And they're so, uh, they're so random. It's like I forget. <laughs> what What was that? Oh, I said that? Yeah, by the end of it, you just feel like, what did I just go through? I, hmm. <laughs> yeah. Which reminds me, you are doing some new randomness. Um, yeah. Please, please, please tell our, our our readers about your new audio random five minutes coolness. Oh, uh, are you talking about assignment unknown? Yes. Oh well, you know, or assignment unknown, good sir. Please, I, I enjoy I enjoy doing those, and I haven't I had a little downtime, and I did it for fun, and then. And people seemed to respond to it and liked it. And I, so I did another one. But then uh, I, I think I, I, what have we got? Three. I've got three up there. And then I, I sort of ran out of downtime, at least for now. So I haven't been able to get back to it. But, you know, it's a, it's a guy, five minutes of a guy whispering in the woods, basically, <laughs> in the dark, by himself, with mounting paranoia about nothing. I mean, it's, yeah, they're really stupid. I, I, I had a real, real fun time doing those. It was so, so goofy. I think what you mean is it's stupid like a fox. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, stupid is, you know, when, when we were shooting these movies, uh, these goofy movies, stupid was the highest compliment. It's always, and, and it's, particularly when we're doing the Big Dan Freighter stuff, mm. man, that was really stupid. That was really stupid. <laughs> and it's, it's like sort of like the primo compliment. And that word has kind of stayed in that mode for, for me and uh, my gang. And, you know, it's kind of, we, we aim for the stupid. So an assignment unknown is pretty stupid. Oh, yes. Yeah, stupid accomplished. Yeah. My compliments. No, I, I, I love those. I love it. Partly because my, my wife likes those ghost hunter shows. Right. And I will come into the room and they will be on and I will roll my eyes until it hurts and then I'll leave. And then just th th somehow that was a tonic for those feelings of resentment. Like, oh, so I, I did not get divorced uh, this year, partly thanks to uh, to your whispering into a microphone in a weird way, Larry. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, they're they're fun, uh, those shows. And I have had a fascination with any anything for, since I was a kid. And so I will watch some of these shows. And some are there are some things that are done more or less documentary and fairly decent narrative. But then there are some that are just. <sighs> You're really goofy, and um, <laughs> I have to have a little fun with them. I don't knock them around a little bit, you know, get a little tough with them, you know, like uh, slap them around a bit. <laughs> kind of way, you know, slap them around. And, uh, so these shows bring out your inner Leo Gorsi. <laughs> well, they do now, I guess. That, um, <laughs> um, 
Thanks. I'll be thinking of that next time. Um, <laughs> Glad uh, to help. But Everyone I, should uh, channel their inner Leo Gorsi at least once or twice in their adult lives. Right, right. I didn't know I had one, but now I now there's an awareness I wish I didn't have. Well, consider yourself lucky. I tried it at Jeff's urging last week, and all I found was my inner Hunts Hall. Uh, <laughs> that we definitely have. We definitely. That's have. an unpleasant experience, believe me. Oh, yeah. Even though I'm, I'm, uh, I'm doing these assignment unknown things, and I'll do some more too. Every now and then, I'll jot down some notes. And, oh, I got to. And I will. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> what was that, Jeff? Did you just leave in a car? Sorry, that was a very loud truck that drove by. Oh, I'm glad they they left you there anyway. Um, but but yeah, I want to I want to do some more of them because it, on the one hand, I I love the unknown and and my belief is we don't we don't know anything about anything, and so I'm I'm an open minded person. But something but but with a lot of these shows, they're just there's really really just kind of silly. So um, so it's fun, yeah. It reminded me actually a, a couple of things you've been doing that and the paintings you've been sharing on uh, Facebook and I, I uh, on Twitter reminds me of why nice I don't segue Scott. I was just about to get into that. Good job. <laughs> As we say in the Mandalorian, this is the segue. So <laughs> I've been thinking lately that I'm changing. I'm the, I'm on the verge of changing my mind about social media because as bad as it is for a lot of the country and as, as eager as it is to exacerbate some of the darker elements in our national personality, it's also an incredible time to be alive for people who love the arts because you get people like you who share stuff they're doing that would not necessarily have been released. You know, it might have gone to a gallery or who knows that we I never would have seen or even heard of. And now you'll post a painting. Uh, Alex Ross will post a painting. A bunch of people. I know a bunch of artists. I like got Jerry Ordway. Just original art. They'll just put up. It's just a little piece, but it just makes your day so much nicer to know that things like that are going on. Well, thank you. That's cool. And you're right. I mean, that is a, that is one really neat thing about social media. Perhaps the only neat thing about it, but still, <laughs> it's got that one. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the paint? How, how did this start? When you when you do this kind of surreal imagery, I always wonder if some something you saw or dreamt just gave you the impulse, or if it was just, you really just stand there and let it happen. Either way, it's it's astonishing. Oh, thank you. Um, well, it, it was uh, it was interesting because I hadn't. I think it's been a uh, it had been a couple of years since I painted, and I just I had this overwhelming urge to just jump in and start painting, and it had been a while. I could tell because acrylic paint that I use, which is called open acrylic, which I discovered a few years ago, they dry slower than regular acrylic, which lets you manipulate it like oil paint. So I open them up and and they're moldy inside. Like yeah. Wood. And, you know, these things are not, they're not cheap. And right. yeah. <laughs> I had to throw out all this acrylic. That's how, how long it had been. And I got some more acrylics and I started painting. And I, I felt this urge that, well, I'm a fairly decent painter and I just never paint. And that's a, that I should, you know, I felt sort of guilty about it almost. And, and I did, the first thing to do is when it's been a long time, put up a canvas and just start putting paint on there and don't think about it. And I did some kind of warm-up paintings. And, and I did another one. I did another, I did several. And then I was getting in the, getting in the, in the, what do you call it when you get into something of it? I was getting in the swing of it, you know. And, <laughs> um, and then I had this idea of doing just this 
crazy kind of painting where I, I just started painting this image and wanted it to be kind of wild and frenetic. And it ended up being AI, a self-portrait by mm -hmm. AI. So, <laughs> you know, a self-portrait of AI by AI. And the redundancy was, was deliberate. And I got some comments on it that it, it reminded people of those old science fiction digest covers. It all oh, yeah. science fiction paperback covers. And uh, that kind of triggered something. I thought, I want to do another one. And I did another in a, in a slightly different style. And then another in a slightly different style. And and then it ended up being this series. I was trying to find a name for it. And I, I settled on um, Lost SF as if they are alternate reality paperback and digest covers of science fiction stuff. from You know, 50s, 60s, whatever. And I admire a lot of that art on there. And and it's been fun because I I get to mix up the styles a little bit. I'm, I'm working on, I think, my 10th in that series. And um, and they're fairly quick. I do some of them just in an afternoon, um, wow. maybe a day and a half at the most. And I do a thing where I I try to work as fast as I can, which which makes me find shortcuts. And I learned I'm still learning stuff about painting. And I don't I think you're always learning it, doing them fast makes you find shortcuts and makes you find ways of find ways of suggesting things in the briefest and most economical manner possible. And so these have been fun for me and a learning experience and, and a chance to do variety within. I love when there's variety within a structure. You've got these are all kind of the same in that they're all these covers and they're all kind of portraits in a way. But within them, there's there's variety. It's like a trading card deck. We like the fact that each one has a, each trading card is exactly uniform, and yet each one has a different, entirely different thing on it. So that kind of appeals to me, and uh, it's been really fun. I'm just really digging the painting again. Yeah, it's. I mean, it, I, I don't want to say it has joy, but it's got a certain joie de vivre about it. Oh, many, no, just, there's some, there's some joy there. Go ahead, give it some joy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fine. Here's ten percent joy. Um, a little bit. I think it had the title when you first posted AI by AI, didn't it? Yes. Yeah. So I remember when I looked at that and I saw that title, I thought, oh, my God, because it, it reminded me of all these pictures people have AIs construct, you know, Captain Kangaroo riding a dolphin or whatever, you know, these weird things. And you'll get these paintings, these images yeah. that sort of look like you, you know what I'm talking about, right? So yeah. On Twitter. Oh, yeah. I thought I wish it wasn't people suggesting weird things. I wish AIs were really painting because I think this is what they would look like and they would think they looked beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I think when you see art made by AI, you finally have the realization that AI is a huge mistake. Yes. Stop. Exactly. Stop right now. Stop before it's too late. Here's the thing, though. If we discourage AI's artistic pretensions at this stage, when it takes over the world, it'll be like Hitler because he got discouraged about his artwork and he had a chip on his shoulder. Do we really want Colossus, the Forbidden Project, pissed at us because we we didn't like its acrylics? I don't know. It's a it's a hey, this is supposed this is supposed to be about joy and happiness, not mechanical dystopia. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Let's bring the joy back. Come on, Scott. You, 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 leave it to you to put the big <laughs> old middle finger in any joy that I try to experience. You know, you know, I hate when art makes makes Scott think. <laughs> <laughs> Damn art. Nobody likes that. That's, that's not the, the that's job, a bad art. Day. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> Speaking of art, um, random tangent. What is the progress on the? I can't think of the name, but the um, the, the graphic novel you're doing. Oh, Steam, Steam Wars. Wars. Yes. Uh, yeah, I haven't. I've got. A, I want to start posting about that again. It's um, the release is for October. It looks fantastic. The um, I've seen the both paperback and hardcover editions, and it's top top flight printing. And I'm excited about that. Yeah. So there'll be more details on, you know, where to purchase that. It's limited run, but as it gets closer to October, I'll be posting more about when and where that'll be available. It'll be nice to have that finally out in solid form as opposed yes. to as opposed to liquid form. Yeah. Well, now, I mean, did it, you write this it, or is it adapted? You know, no, no, I, I wrote it. I wrote every, okay. issue, including the, uh, including the gallery of 1890s fighting rigs, right down to their specs and stuff. I did the cover, and one of my covers is on the inside, but all the artwork was different teams of artists. That was an interesting process because I, I storyboarded everything. I'm kind of a control freak about that. But it's but you have to be, well, I guess, when it's a you know world-building thing like Steam Wars, which has uh, you know, a fair amount of depth to its to its world oh a tremendous amount of depth that's one of the things i love about it is is the the pains you've gone to in building the world not just what the um the u.s steam force is like and a certain amount of information on the prussians because they're the the big bad but just the whole the whole world and and how it how it adapts to these things existing like for instance yeah. i remember you you posted a um i think it was from this that you posted a, a brief excerpt of the beginning of the Steam Wars screenplay. And from that, I learned that yep. there was a maybe not so friendly rivalry between the Steam Force and the Cavalry. Yes. And when I thought about it for a second, I go, oh, that makes absolute sense. But it's not just like, oh, how cool this is, but how does everyone feel about this? Do they all feel it's cool? Some people probably would feel like, no, this is going to end my livelihood or make me irrelevant. And so much world building doesn't take in how how people feel about stuff. It's just mm. this is cool, and and I, that's one of the things I like about it. One thing is it makes it it makes it real, which is perfect because it's it's a very you know oil drenched, greasy blue collar sci-fi thing, which mm -hmm. is a, also why I, I really love it. But I'm so excited that it's coming out in a collection because I've got the individual issues, but to have them all together and in a nice format. Yeah, and in, in hard copy as opposed to just digital, uh, which mm -hmm. I'm. Old, old school. I think a lot of the fans of Steam Wars are old school about having one you can hold in your hands. And what you were talking about with Steam Wars is you sort of touched on the that rivalry kind of reflects the the Steam Force is is Teddy Roosevelt's great experiment, not the technological end of it, but the spirit of it. And it's that thing that could be Teddy's folly, because this is a this is an absurd idea. And what does the Navy think of that? What does the cavalry think? What, what does the U.S. Army think? Or the contingent of Marines that are riding in the hold of a steam rig ready to deploy. So there's a lot of a lot of different elements here, and, and, it, and it creates a tension, and it makes the steam force an underdog, which I love. I love an underdog, and, and they've got to prove themselves. And the three heroes are, you know, are kind of screw-ups. I mean, <laughs> but not because they uh, are incompetent, but because they are... Maybe the only ones who understand that you have to break the rules to make things to to be successful in what they're doing. And so 
you know, you've got some old school commanders, you know, with the big sideburns and the in the Victorian right. attitude, and you've got these these young upstarts who are um, well, and not so young actually, because uh, Chief Duff is is an older guy, and they have to break the rules in order to make things happen a lot of the time. So that's kind of that's a big deal for me in Steam Wars, the underdogs. I really responded to that theme because it reminded me when I was reading it of kind of what happened to the army when air power came in. And it was just, all right, you guys, you know, just just tell us where they are. And then they, you know, then the Air Corps started fighting other, you know, fighting in the air. And, and that became a whole other arm of the service. But there's always that, that you know, generals are always fighting the last war mentality. Same thing when, it, when a, uh, a technology is so transformative, like air power or like submarines, say, that it becomes its own thing and everyone else has to adapt to it. And some people just aren't great at adapting. Some people want to keep fighting that that same war because they did really well in it. And I, I, I like the fact that the Steam War was sort of like a threat that other arms of the military might be sort of secretly rooting for them to fall, literally fall on their face. Right. But at the same time are relieved when it comes over the hill when they're getting their asses kicked by the enemy. Right. Basically, Steam Wars also sort of seemed to me like instead of tanks appearing in World War One. They appeared in this very different form 20 years earlier, 40 years earlier. And to me, that's that's the defining element of a good alternate history is if they have one little switch flipped that changes everything. And yes, I, it, that's that's, that. that's exactly right. It's it's just that one. And that's why it's different from a lot of um, from a lot of steampunk. It's it's on the fringe of steampunk. It's more of a traditional action adventure that happens to be in a sort of steampunkish world, but but it's on the fringe. I say on the fringe because it's it's not that the whole world is like airships and 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 steam. It's it's just a certain percentage of it is elevated by these steam machines, and it's like you mentioned tanks. It's it's like okay, what if what if it was a vertical progression, of, you know? <laughs> The, the progress was all vertical. And, uh, and and so they're going, you know, it's like taller, taller tanks, basically, and they're walking. And um, that's that that's just the one conceit. And I think if you have too many conceits in in a world like that, you're going to you're going to have trouble with some of the credibility. You know, it's already a fantastic idea. The idea of a crew riding inside of these walking, massive walking machines. And you can't add too much more to that. It does get as it gets later on in the stories, we have the development of air power, but it's not airplanes because we're not going in that direction. It's it's more um, airships that are uh, sleek, powerful airships. And then and so the, so then you have aerial warfare adding to the steam warfare. So that's a, that'll be another element. And I, I, I love how. You think, well, how can a dirigible really be a threat to them? I mean, all they need are a few lucky shots, and the the you know fuel cell, the uh, gas cells will start to leak, and it'll crash. But I I love how you've made them this terrifying threat to the steam rigs, because what, what's it called, the Luftraum, something like that? Yes. It it's it's basically got a plow on the front of it, and it can decapitate <laughs> the these huge armored behemoths, and of course that's where the that's where the the captain and the pilot and, and you know the the command crew sits in the in the head cap. So you knock that off. Basically, you know you you've killed the machine. It's no longer a threat. Yeah. Um, 
And I just thought that was a that was a really clever way to, to act to turn a dirigible into a melee weapon. I just okay, that's going out. And yet, it, it in the world it works. It's perfectly it it is credible. Yeah. So I I also kind of feel like you have a very you're you have a very good point when you say you can go too far with the world building because I I I do like certain steampunk novels where they just absolutely created a, a, a fictional Earth. It has. It, it didn't just depart in the Victorian era. It's it's another dimension. Everyone's wearing you know top hats and goggles, and and they're taking their orders from a cat. Whatever, everything, the whole world's built around this steam technology. But like you say, that that not only raises credibility, but it also makes it hard kind of for me to identify with the characters in it. If they're good characters, it'll work. But but sometimes people who build those worlds don't spend the uh, the equivalent amount of time with their characters, which is not a problem in Steam Wars. The characters are extremely well defined um, and, and, and very likable. But I, I, I really do like the ones where, where, as you say, you just take one element and change it and then you've got a, you've got a whole new world and yet it is completely recognizable. And you, you, can, you can legitimately put in historical figures like Teddy Roosevelt, which is something else I love when that comes up in alternate history stuff. Hell, hell, even in the, uh, the Alienist. I don't know if you read that book or saw the series, but yes. uh, it, it, that took place in the time when Roosevelt was a uh, police commissioner in New York City. Right. And he was just a fun character to include in this gruesome murder mystery. Yeah, he's a natural here. Uh, he, he's he just he fits in perfectly. And he's the, the first commander in chief of the, of the steam force. I mean, he is used a lot, but but it was just too perfect to not have him involved. No, he's absolutely you just see him saying bully. As these things pass in review, it made perfect sense. Yeah. And you said this is getting released in October. Yes, it'll be. Uh, the books will be available in October, and uh, I'll have more details as we go along. Get closer. Understood. Now, before we let you go, I do have a question that I, I want to ask as, oh, as I've been on. Uh huh. Well, yeah, it's, you. I'm keeping with the time limit here, sir. <laughs> well, of course, we didn't you start. Would, no. Uh, a little later, so we did. Yeah. That is true. That is true. But I, I, I keeping keeping the 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 theme of of joy. I want to know what has Larry been watching that has brought Larry joy. Have, have you seen anything recently that has brought you joy? Let me tell you something I haven't seen lately. I haven't seen that is still bringing me joy, even though I haven't seen it. And that's the the horror westerns that are suddenly appearing. And and I, I don't mean it's not like a flood of horror westerns, but um, there's one called Blackwood that sounds really interesting that it has uh, a release. I think it's on streaming now. And uh, I just was hearing some good stuff about Prey. Another oh, dude, western. Prey is amazing. <clears throat> I, 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 I did see Prey. Prey, I was blown away by. And it is essentially a horror western, isn't it? Even though it's 300 years ago, I believe. Oh yeah, it's 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 um. What I love is you can even watch it in a full Comanche dub. Oh, nice, nice. It, yeah, apparently, like all the original actors came back. The film itself is in Comanche and English, but if you want to watch it in a full dub, they 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 redubbed the film for that. And it definitely, I, I watched both versions, and I got to say, the Comanche dub was interesting just for like the immersive aspects. And I got to say, this is the first Predator film in a long time that I actually felt immersed in if that makes sense i mean there's not a lot of special effects there's not a lot of world building it's a comanche brave against a predator there's your story and it fucking works 
Well, I'm I'm looking forward to it, and I have to say I haven't I don't I don't remember the last time I saw a Predator movie, and I don't know if I in fact thinking back I might not have seen anything since Predator Two, and I know that's a long time ago, but it didn't. Uh, you you uh, were you you've been wise, and if somebody says to you, hey, you should watch the Predator, you should say, locked, recorded, because it's not good. That, yeah, there the are people who will say that. There are people who will say that, and um, those people may be good, but they are wrong. No, but pray I was genuinely, genuinely shocked by how much I liked it. Um, have you seen RRR yet, Larry? RRR? No. I, I'm, I, I guess know. not. It is on Netflix. Um, I went into it knowing absolutely nothing, so I'm going to say if you have three hours to kill, it feels like 40 minutes. It is one of the greatest action films I have seen in decades. It is a mind-blowingly good film. Um, it takes it takes place during the British colonization of India, and it has two historical Indian figures who are meeting fictionally in the film. Hmm. Well, this sounds like this might be your kind of thing, Larry, because I know you have an appreciation for foreign-made historical epics that are largely unknown in this country. I always enjoy your posts on those. You bring you know, one up. Yeah, and I haven't. I kind of. Uh... I've been missing those. I, went, I was really binging on those because once you discover that the rest of the world still likes to have thousands of experts <laughs> and lots of money and huge sets in their historical epics, then you can like find these Hungarian and Bulgarian and Chinese and Korean films that are just mind boggling. So, yeah, yeah, I'm very intrigued. Yeah, it's 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 not. I know that Netflix does not have the original dub. It's in Hindi, but still, I if you have the time to kill, it won't. It does not feel like three hours at all. I literally thought I'd only been sitting there for an hour by the time the three hours was done. Mm. And it has, without a doubt, my favorite dance number I have seen in ages. Because I mean, it's in you. You gotta have it. You gotta have a random dance number. Your fandom. Your favorite dance number. It, it, yes, the dance. It is an amazing dance number, and you know how I am about the random musical sequences. And this one is just Chef's Kiss. So it's it's actually better than the closing number in uh, Dancing. It's on. Yes, surprisingly, I know because that that that, that is a true classic. No, this ranks up there with um with a Rob Van Winkle and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles too. Okay. <laughs> Actually, th this brings up something I want to talk about because I know you've been you've been posting about going through the renown cycle of, yeah. of of films, and I'd like to talk a little bit about where westerns have been and where they're going because I have a bet with myself that I can use this topic to actually put Jeff into a coma. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> can you talk a little bit about the the Butterker Scott films for people who aren't familiar? Because yeah. Basically, when Randolph Scott and Harry Joe Brown hooked up with Bud Bedecker on the Warner Brothers, it was actually set up a, a, a Batjack, a J John Wayne's. It was a hand-me-down from John Wayne, a movie called mm. Men From Now. And that hooked up Scott and his producer, Harry Joe Brown, with Bud Bedecker. And then Seven Men From Now was excellent. It really is. It's a, it's a great Western. But they wanted a better deal. So they went to Columbia, to Scott's own company, and produced several more westerns i think it was at seven and all uh and it's starting with the tall t with richard boone and mm. uh, maureen o'hara henry henry silva and skip holmeyer and these are very compact tight tough gritty 
raw westerns. And we're talking 50s here, 19, you know, mid 50s, right up to 1961. I think the last one was Comanche Station. Um, mm-hmm. And these are fantastic quality. And uh, Tall T, the first one was from an Elmore Leonard story. These are really, really great westerns. And uh, and I revisited them on the uh, Mill Creek has a set, the Randolph Scott collection. You know, these Randolph Scott films all looking beautiful on, on Blu-ray. And it's not just the renowns in that set. There's a number of others. I think it might be a dozen films in all. Um, so yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of that. It's funny because around that time when they were they were backing off of of noir quite a bit, you you got these very dark themes in westerns, which became much more adult in the 50s. Um, I mean, you even see Jimmy Stewart making some morally gray decisions in some of them. Yeah. And I think it's a very interesting time for that genre. But you were talking about horror westerns. And that's one of my favorite genre hybrids because I just think the brutality of the frontier setting lends itself really well to horror. And in fact, you know, there's there's horror in a lot of early westerns if you want to think about what they're implying about what's happening off screen, even though they're not showing it. Mm-hmm. I was thinking modern westerns, The Power of the Dog, say, being a recent example, seem more like the films we got toward the end of the western boom. You know, adult yep. stories that use the myths and the West to comment on the darker impulses and undercurrents in our national identity. And I wonder, do you think you could, I, I, I know they tried with Silverado, which was you know, in the eighties, but do you think you could make a straight Western today with, without the sort of psychological chiaroscuro? Yeah. Do you think uh, that would work? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, it, power of the dog to me really was, it was, it, it, I, a lot of people disliked that movie and I, I loved it. But um, uh, it it's it really in a way seemed like a modern extension of the Anthony Mann westerns that you mentioned Jimmy Stewart making <laughs> decisions like Naked Spur and and uh, Man from Laramie and such um, and uh, it, it's almost like a return to that adult when the adult westerns stopped in uh, well. When did they start? They started gradually uh, in the sort of late 40s into the early 50s. Like High Noon is considered, you know, one of the the markers for for adult westerns. And then through the Anthony Mann and the Renowned Cycle, and uh, and then right up to 1960, where things got a little big in Technicolor and a little happier and stuff. And 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 a lot of those grim, downbeat westerns. And by the way. Day of the Outlaw, I just revisited. That is my favorite all-time Western. I, uh, Andre Which one? De, uh, Day of the Outlaw, 1959, Andre de Toth, uh, Robert oh. Ryan. Uh, it is completely snowbound, and it is cold and bleak. I highly recommend that movie. But my point is, though, that what happened in the 60s, of course, is the, the Italian Westerns and, the, and, and Euro Westerns in general. And that changed the tone. It changed it so that by the end of the 60s, what we've got is kind of a, a we've got a, a split between, you got like Hang'em High, which has some of that Euro-Western flavor, and it's got Clint Eastwood fresh from the Euro-Westerns, but it's got Ted Post, who gave it sort of an American sensibility and kind of made it like, almost like the Anthony Mann type stuff. Fire Creek in 1968, one of the most underrated, neglected masterpieces. Vincent McAvity directed that. Jimmy Stewart and Henry Fonda, Fire Creek, absolutely superb western, and and it was, it was it went right against the grain of the where everyone else was going, which was the, 
the Euro Western, because it's back to the it's a real American type Western like the 50s. And then you've got the Wild Bunch and the Wild Bunch was was pure peck and paw. I don't I don't think there was any I don't see any Euro Western influence in that. And then you've got uh, Michael Winter's stuff in the early 70s, Shadows Land and um, Lawman, two masterpieces, one with Burt Lancaster, the other with Charles Bronson. And they were also in that kind of American adult Western groove. But I think I think it's been a while since I've seen one that really Tombstone was was fairly good. I uh, with Kurt Russell. Over the years, you know, there seems to be a, a good, solid, strong Western every now and then. But too often, I find they try to be slick and cool, and everything was cool, and and I miss that kind of raw edge. And I thought that Power of the Dog had that kind of thing. I mean, it's 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 not even, you know, it's hardly a Western. I mean, yeah. it it's it's set in West, but it's not in the 1800s, and it's it's not a shoot 'em up. I mean, there's no there's no shooting, no gunplay. So I don't know. Is that a Western? To me, it was a Western in the sense that it was like, what, 1912 or something? It was before the First World War, yeah. after the 20th century. Yeah. And, you know, life hadn't changed all that much from 20 or 30 years previously. Yeah. But the frontier was closed. They weren't hewing an empire out of the wilderness. They were just they just had a ranch and they were working it. They were just part of the market system of, of American capitalism. But they were still haunted by the landscape or the expectations or the themes or the dreams of the West. It just seemed like like there, there were these these impulses and these feelings that everyone had a hard time dealing with because they were not appropriate, whether it was they were not appropriate because people socially couldn't handle it at the time, or they were not appropriate because they were they belonged to an earlier era that had ended. Mm. Um, it just seemed like another one of those things where like it's the world's changing and some people can't change with it, which I, I is was something I think was a big theme in the Wild Bunch. And actually, when you mentioned the Wild Bunch, you said there wasn't a lot of there's not at all a lot of Euro Western feeling, except for one thing, the machine gun. So it reminds me of all the Euro Westerns where some loader comes into town, gets beat up and then comes back with a Gatling gun or something. You know, it's like why well, I would never piss off Franco Nero. <laughs> I was reading the Criterion Collection article about the renowned cycle and the writer quotes french critic uh, andre bazin who liked westerns and liked them no frills he just like tall rangy men shooting out shooting it out amidst the sagebrush with none of that character shading or psychological frippery and when i was reading that i was surprised that he had such a reductive view then it dawned on me that french people look at us this the same way we look at them as stereotypes amusing cliches <laughs> i mean if you're gonna if you say you're gonna make a movie about leprechauns I want to see all the tropes, the burrows, the rainbows, the pots of gold, the accent, the clay pipes, whatever. Rather than, say, a two-hour movie about a leprechaun couple struggling to hold their marriage together in times of economic <laughs> suffering. You know what I mean? It's not just inflation with leprechauns. Thanks to global warming, there's more drought, fewer rainbows, less gold. <laughs> so. Yep, know. yep. That's interesting. That's interesting. You know, Westerns are always, uh, ah, they're gone, the Westerns are gone, then another Western happens, and and it does, it does, you know, fairly well. Um, they never go away. They just keep coming back. And now there's, now I have not seen 1883. Uh, I don't have Paramount Plus or whatever it is. I, I understand that that's really well done and kind of gritty. And uh, so that that's something I want, I'd like to like to take a look at. But I think they're always going to come back. There's always room. There's always room for westerns. 
Yeah, because because we like our own cliches about ourselves too. We like our own stereotypes. We like yeah. to we like we Westerns flatter Americans. Yeah, you know, it's like you, modern Americans got 15 long arms in his gun safe and thinks he's tough shit, <laughs> and you know would like Randolph Scott to uh, confirm it for him. Thank you. So <laughs> it, it's interesting because westerns are you know I think the most except for maybe no even more than gangster movies it's the most gun obsessed genre we have. And it sort of defines us in the, in the views of a lot of other countries. Yeah. But, you know, this is how technology ruins them. You mentioned the Euro movies where Gatling guns are showing up. You can only do so much damage with a six-shooter. And usually in, in a, a gunfight, there's only w- one shot squeezed off per combatant. Not not like our not like, not like the modern cowboys who go into schools. So I, I just, I, I think people think that Westerns, I've heard them blamed. It's like, well, we've been feeding ourselves these myths since the silent era. I don't think the Westerns, the message of the Westerns was always violence solves the problem. No. But definitely in the West, in the adult Westerns, the kind you're talking about, even if violence solves the problem, violence exacts a toll, which is what I like about them. Yeah, absolutely. And you see that in um, in something like uh, Edward Dimitrik's uh, Warlock, which is a fantastic mm. And it's only gotten better over the years. And in a similar way, in uh, Lawman, Michael Winner's film with Burt Lancaster, that's like a Shakespearean tragedy. I mean, and it's operatic. It's absolutely huge. And it's and it's painful. I think that's a big difference for me. Is the shooting fun or is or is it exacting a toll? You find some of the the big glossy Westerns from the 60s. It's sort of like I used to call them a lot of them uh, grin and shoots. Where you know, <laughs> it's kind of like this, you know, big big name stars and they're shooting and it just seems to be a lot of fun. For me, it's it's more impactful when there's when there's a toll. You know, when we talk about every once in a while, a Western will come along and prove that it's not dead. I think that was one of the things that people really responded to in Unforgiven was because right. it was nothing but toll. You know, it was all just it's not as easy as just pulling a trick. Yeah, and not not a lot of westerns dealt with it. So yeah, I I, I do like that. I, I do like the ones that have that, and I think it's it's a way. It, it has been a way traditionally that we kind of talk to ourselves about who we are as a people. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know. Does maybe superhero movies fill that that now? But in westerns, you can identify with the hero because they are human beings. They're not gods. And uh, even though I think they're treated in similar themes, they are they're easier for me to relate to. Yeah. I got proof that they're not going to die. I've got I've got an 11 year old son who is hooked on the rifleman. Oh really? And um, <laughs> right now he's he's on a real kick about that show. Um, he and I actually we practice fast draws. And uh, when he was when he was younger, I taught him a little gun twirling and stuff because I which I had to do for uh, a play on stage at one point. Learned a little six shooter twirling and and he loves you know putting on the western gear. He loves the wild wild west which is, of course, more fantastic. But he also um, is into uh, Have Gun, Will Travel, Wanted Dead or Alive. Steve McQueen is one of his heroes. And, oh, yeah, the coolest man ever. Yep, yep. So, yeah, he's living proof that the Western does not die. Wow. Okay, that's filled me with joy. Thank you. It happened. <laughs> and I found the greatest donut on the ground over here. <laughs> <laughs> See, everything is a circle. Wow! Unfortunately, unfortunately, it's it it has Russell Brand's voice, and it's telling me to kill Major Barrett, which is kind of redundant. Oh wow! Well, 
But it is a nice looking donut, though. I, I can't, I cannot, I cannot deny that. Larry, oh, speaking, you, wait, speak, yes, real oh, quick. Oh, Lord, what, how, how are you going to stick your thumb in my donut now? I'm sorry, <laughs> but the donut thing reminded me. Larry, did you see everything everywhere all at once? Okay. Uh, no. Oh, oh my God. God, Larry. It's, uh, it's, no, no, no. It's, it's, it's a, a Three Stooges Columbia short lengthened to feature length and written and directed by Salvador Dali and Luis Bunuel. It's <laughs> it's as close to to surrealism as they've as as the movies have gotten in recent years. How do I see that? I I think it's still in theaters, but it's toward the end of its run and it should be coming to streaming soon. But absolutely I know it's, it's available. It is available to um rent or buy i use some birthday money to buy it not going to lie it's like that and rrr are my two favorite movies of this year wow. yeah, i think i think you'll find it even if you don't love it i think you'll find it you, you'll find what the what the writer directors are doing very interesting i'm intrigued i am intrigued thank you i will uh, i will uh, look for that that Thanks. one yes yes that one you you i will be very interested in your review of that puppy and <laughs> sir thank you so much as always, it is a joy. Now, here's the deal. Um, next time you come on, next yeah. time you come on, I want to do something a little different here. I'm going to find a movie that none of us have seen. Okay. Good luck so, finding a movie that Larry hasn't seen. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, I, I am up to so, that challenge. Scott, you of all people know I can try. Dear God, yes. No, I, I'm sorry. I take that back. Do not taunt Jeff about finding something you've never heard of because he will come back and he will make you regret it. Before, <laughs> before we go, though, uh, especially since there's going to be, uh, and I'm very excited for these upcoming announcements about the Steam War collections, Larry, could you tell us where everybody can find you on social media, where you will be dropping those hits? Well, yeah, uh, under my name, Larry Blamire, on uh, I have a public page and a personal page on Facebook. I'm Larry Blamire on Twitter, and I'm Larry Blamire on Instagram. But gosh, I'm Larry Blamire everywhere. <laughs> Is there too much Larry Blamire? Not oh, yet, but you it could be a problem change, in the future. You should change one. You should change one to Steve. Just one. Just change it to Steve. Uh, see if anybody notices. All right, one one token, Steve. You get it. Yes, or better yet, Manuel. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Okay. But anyway, um, again, yes. Yeah. No, I said anything to help. Oh. Oh. oh okay. <laughs> I, I I thought it was. Oh, and one more I'm thing. Sorry, my my first reading must have been really off. Can you try yeah, it again, but with a sense of deja vu? Yes. Let's go to the top then. 